0: Welcome to the Shotguns and Sugar podcast, where we take a deeper look at topics you don't learn about in school. I'm Dr. McCloskey and I enjoy exploring different parts of history. The Industrial Revolution brought huge advancements in agriculture, healthcare, transportation, and manufacturing. As we in America enhanced ideas and inventions developed in Europe, our nation became the economic powerhouse that has fed and clothed much of the world for over a century. But the side effects of the Industrial Revolution created far-reaching waves of change in our society that we still enjoy. These influences are found in efforts to create and manage cities friendly to their residents, increase the importance of private charitable actions, and in our expectations of our government that are still evolving. As farming became more and more mechanized, fewer agricultural jobs were available. This loss of agricultural jobs created an employable group to staff the growing needs of mills and factories. This led to urbanization and abuses of mill workers, both adults and children, by mill managers. It also began to create the unhealthy, smoky, polluted atmospheres that manufacturing towns became famous for. While the standard of living increased for most, the urban environment also brought its own set of problems. Increasing density in the cities brought about an increase in crime. Also, the close quarters required the development of sanitary sewer systems and the need to make clean water and food available to all. The citizenry looked to government to address issues beyond the ability of private businesses to provide, things like the police and community-operated water and sewer systems. Providing these services necessarily required increased taxes and the accompanying complaints about the management of public goods and services. Child labor also became an issue. In the early 1900s, in Maryland and Virginia, women became concerned about the mixing of children and adults in the state prison systems. To prevent sexual assault of children by their adult cellmates, women began to go to the prisons in the evenings and read to the children, ostensibly to help them acquire an education, sometimes staying the entire night to protect the children. Activities like these brought women into public positions, first in state health departments and later as directors of prisons and state educational systems. Through activities like these, women were able to force states to enact child labor laws, including maximum work hours and compulsory education. As women began to move into the factories, mills, and mines, the culture of domesticity which placed women's roles in the home gave way to a more public role for women. This cultural shift brought with it an attitude that women should share in the political activities that controlled the public sphere, leading women to demand equal pay and equal suffrage, the right to vote. Women's suffrage in the United States came early. Men started writing about the need for women to vote during the Revolutionary War, about the same time the Industrial Revolution started in Europe. It picked up steam after the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. This today event set the direction for the suffrage movement and continues to define much of today's feminist agenda. Hope rose during the debates surrounding the adoption of the 15th Amendment that women would achieve suffrage with the freed slaves, but it was not to be. Although the freed slaves, the men anyway, in the United States were granted suffrage in 1870, the women had to wait another 50 years to gain those same rights. By the way, the United States was not the first to grant women the right to participate in the political process. That award goes to Sweden, who granted women the right to vote in local elections in 1718. The close quarters and challenges of urbanization also brought new ways of thinking. Men like Karl Marx popularized the idea that if government-controlled economic structures, then living conditions would improve for all. The concept of socialism did not start with Marx. Rather, Marx built on ideas that had been bandied about for decades. But by the time of the Russian Revolution, his concepts of communal ownership fell on a receptive audience. With advances in scientific inquiry during the era, many looked to modern ways of reasoning to explain, if not cure, social ills. Why, for instance, do some succeed in business where others consistently fail? The numerous failures prior to success often elude the casual observer of the rich and famous. But a more scientific way to explain these inconsistencies was to apply natural theory to social ills, the concept of social Darwinism. The idea that those of northern European descent were more fit for business and western life than were those of other racial or ethnic groups, be they black, brown, yellow, or red. Of course, the economic structures of capitalism, with its center on the profit motive in the marketplace as the manager of the economy, encouraged the entrepreneurship that drove the Industrial Revolution. A natural outgrowth of capitalism is the reinforcement of classism. Those that risk the most receive the most reward. Those that seek security receive it, but at the cost of greater income. As the risk-takers gain wealth, economic class divisions develop. Although abuses of the employee by the entrepreneur are not consistent with true capitalism, where it is to the owner's benefit to have strong, loyal employees. Nevertheless, managerial-led abuses resulted in employees looking for a voice as loud and powerful as those of the employers. Enter the development of labor unions. Yet in spite of all the negatives that came from the Industrial Revolution, more than a few positives also developed that continue to influence American society today. A couple of these positives were the growth of philanthropy, which in turn brought private support for education, efforts to resolve racial and ethnic conflicts, the expansion of libraries and art venues, and efforts to improve urban and rural living conditions through the City Beautiful movement. In his day, Andrew Carnegie was considered a friend of the working man until the Homewood strike painted him as a money-hungry ogre. But today, few realize that after the strike, he quietly, without fanfare, wrote personal checks to help many of the employees the strike harmed the most. In some instances, he paid off employees' mortgages and provided lifelong incomes to the spouses of those killed in the strike. Andrew Carnegie's contribution to many of these positives are also often ignored. One of the greatest, or worst, depending on your perspective, of the robber barons of the era, in 21st century dollars, Carnegie was worth about $100 billion, compared to Bill Gates' relatively paltry 50 or so billion. Yet he promised himself he would not die wealthy. Shortly after his retirement as an active industrialist, Carnegie is reported to have told a friend, I am not going to grow old piling up wealth, but in distributing it. One of his first significant public acts of philanthropy took place in 1881, just six years after opening the Edgar Thompson Steelworks, when he built a library for the town of his birth, Dumfermline, Scotland. By 1908, he had helped build some 1,500 libraries in 11 countries. By 1920, he had donated funds to build another 1,000. His most famous, and I think largest, is the Carnegie Library and Museum Complex in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Carnegie Libraries kept his name in the forefront of the robber baron philanthropists, but they were far from his only contribution to American generosity. Most are not aware of his pioneering efforts in retirement pensions. Soon after he sold his company to J. Pierpont Morgan, who combined Carnegie's assets with his own to form the U.S. Steel Corporation, Carnegie used $4 of his own dollars to endow the Carnegie Relief Fund. It was designed to cover the expenses of those who had retired from his mills, who were injured on the job, and to support the families of those who died in accidents at his mills. The fund was modeled after ones the B&O and Pennsylvania Railroads had set up earlier, but went beyond these funds' limitations in significant ways. In his later years, he established several foundations, known at the time as trusts, to support scientific research, artistic productions, and increase access to education for lower and middle classes. Anyone who has watched PBS television and listened to the credits is familiar with the Carnegie Foundation. Some of his efforts were far-fetched, to say the least. For a short time, he promoted a plan to combine the United States, Canada, and England into a single political union. While the idea was, and is, laughable, Carnegie found support for the idea in the Westminster Review and from Herbert Spencer, the British railway engineer turned philosopher. While the idea collapsed from its own weight, it spurred Carnegie on to his dream of world peace and what I think is his greatest philanthropic contribution to the world. The creation of a library and peace palace that today houses the Permanent Arbitration Court, known colloquially as the World Court, in the capital of the Netherlands, the Hague. In fact, Carnegie spent a significant portion of his retirement seeking after world peace. He was one of the most vocal opponents of American imperialism that plagued the McKinley and Roosevelt administrations in the 1890s and early 1900s. Julius Rosenwald's support for the poor and downtrodden is another example of the philanthropic efforts of these so-called robber barons. Rosenwald's name is not generally found among the list of great industrialists, yet during the era he was considered one of the greatest. Unlike Carnegie, who was 10 when his family came to America and who started to support his parents and siblings when he was around 12, Rosenwald was the son of Jewish immigrants who were part of the Springfield, Illinois middle class when Julius came along. He was taught the principle of philanthropy in his home and church. As a child, he learned the principles of Zadika that he practiced throughout his life. The Zadika is a Jewish tradition that includes the responsibility to help others of the faith become self-sufficient. His father, Samuel Rosenwald, received this form of charitable giving when he immigrated from Germany in 1854, when a leading family in the Baltimore Jewish community taught him the dry goods business and introduced him to his future bride, his benefactor's sister. By the time Julius came along, Samuel was a well-established shopkeeper. When he was 16, Julius moved to New York to learn the clothing manufacturing business from his uncle, the same one that helped his father when he arrived in America. In 1886, Julius and his brother Morris, with funding from their New York uncle, settled in Chicago and began manufacturing a line of men's summer clothing. In the mid-1890s, they acquired Richard Sears and Alva C. Roebuck as new customers. The two had just started a new mail order business to compete with Montgomery Ward. But by 1901, the relationship between Rosenwald's and Sears companies began to sour when Sears had difficulty paying for their orders. By happy chance, Julius' brother-in-law had come to know Richard Sears and offered to introduce the two men. Mostly, I think, to get paid for his shipments and keep his largest customer, Julius offered to help Sears work out the management difficulties his business was experiencing. He ended up first a partner and then as the company's general manager. By 1903, the company was making enough money that the owners felt they could safely pay themselves their first dividend. Rosenwald's portion came to $2 million. That's in 1903 money. In the 21st century economy, it would be about $50 million. The next year, he raised his donation to the Jewish Relief Fund from $50 to $3,000. In deference to his ancestral home, he also gave the University of Chicago $6,000 to build a library to house a collection of German-language books. In 1905, he was the largest donor to a brand new program designed to help Jews fleeing persecution in Eastern Europe integrate into American society. As the Great Migration began to increase Chicago's African American population, Rosenwald recognized similarities between racial discrimination against blacks in America and ethnic discrimination that Jews experienced in Europe. This link carried over into his philanthropy. He committed $25,000 to build the first African-American YMCA in Chicago, provided others donated the remaining $75,000. He then went out and recruited other members of the community to cover these $75,000. He also offered to donate the same amount of money to any industrial city who would provide the same match. His offer led to the construction of the colored YMCAs throughout the industrialized Midwest. Eventually, this commitment led to his association with Booker T. Washington, the head of the Tuskegee Institute. The two became close friends, and when Washington told Rosenwald that one of his biggest challenges was finding students properly prepared for the rigors of higher education, Rosenwald responded with an offer to help build local primary schools that could prepare students to be successful at Tuskegee. In 1914, he agreed to match funds a local community raised for a black school up to $350. Later, as school needs grew, the amount of the match increased. While the number may seem small in our modern era, where new elementary and high school construction costs can run in the millions, these smaller, rural, local schools simply were not as large or expensive. Also, a dollar went much further in 1915 than it does today. To qualify for the matching funds, the communities needed to have approval from the local school boards and an agreement to staff and fund school operations. In some areas, Rosenwald also partly funded teacher salaries and built residences for teachers and administrators to encourage quality staffing. By the time the program closed in 1932, Rosenwald had funded almost 5,000 schools, 4,977 to be exact. Yet his contribution was really seed money that motivated other sources. The $4.7 million he contributed generated $6 million in local personal donations and $18 million in state and local governmental allocations. Unlike Carnegie, Rosenwald did not encourage recipients to recognize his contributions, often choosing to remain anonymous. His donations were designed to build the individuals in the communities where they were located and to help those who benefited from his largesse to become self-sufficient. Although Rosenwald did not deal directly with racial discrimination, several of his programs increased community pride among the African American communities. These projects also provided the education needed to begin to break down barriers that continue to divide class and community in our nation today. While both Carnegie and Rosenwald left legacies in the form of libraries, schools, and hospitals, Madam C.J. Walker's philanthropic efforts left more personal legacies. Like Carnegie, who spent much of his force in promoting education in Scotland, and Rosenwald, whose primary benefactors were Jewish, Walker focused on the needs of the African-American community. One of her early philanthropic efforts took place in 1911, when she donated $1,000 to the colored YMCA of Indianapolis. The fact that a woman had made such a large contribution prompted Booker T. Washington to give the keynote address at the dedication. Her support for education was diverse, including donating both money and time as she managed a fundraising effort for Mary McLeod Bethune's School for African American Girls in Daytona, Florida. She also provided funds to help a prep school in Sedalia, North Carolina, and of course to the Tuskegee Institute. Madam C.J. Walker was also involved in supporting black social movements of the day. She gave $5,000 to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund, and she gave estate gifts to the organization that helped it survive the Great Depression. Her focus on local issues included sponsoring a charity ball in 1915 to pay off the debt of the Alpha Home for Aged Colored Women. In what must have been one of her last acts of philanthropy, in 1919 she contributed to the campaign to burn the mortgage of Frederick Douglass's home. Like Rosenwald, her acts of charity and giving did not leave buildings with her name in them. Instead, they provided economic backing to programs and activities that supported and encouraged the African-American community during the height of the Jim Crow discrimination era. Efforts to assuage the societal ills of the Industrial Revolution also spawned the urban planning profession. Combined with the City Beautiful movement, planners began to redesign cities to reduce the effects of societal ills. Atlee Ayers, an internationally known architect of the era, once commented, food, rent, and household sundries are the material items in the standard of living but one must remember that every family demands something else in the way of education, amusement, and social intercourse, for which its members will go hungry if necessary. The movement's architectural side promoted patriotism and support for the government by designing monumental buildings using a neoclassical motif, like Washington, D.C.'s old Union Station. The movement also championed the use of BOSAR monuments that were vaguely classical but with a modern twist, like the Lincoln Memorial. It followed Ayers' Council as it promoted the construction of parks and open spaces to give those tied to the squalor of the tenement houses a chance to feel the soil and see the open sky. New York City's Central Park, designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, is one of the best examples of this type of urban development. The City Beautiful movement influenced the designs of such far-flung cities as Denver, Colorado, Memphis, Tennessee, Coral Gabriels, Florida, and even California's Palos Verdes Estates. Some industrialists, like Frank and William Gilchrist, who made their fortune in the timber business helping to rebuild Chicago after its disastrous 1871 fire, applied some of these principles in their tiny rural company towns. Burdett, Arkansas, for example, had company-built baseball fields, a bandstand, and an ice cream parlor to help the thousand or so residents get away from the dust and grime of the mill. They also provided an open-air canning kitchen and community garden to encourage social interaction that was often missing in urban cities but was more organic in rural communities. The town's open-air theater brought William Jennings Bryan and other luminaries who frequented the Chicago Lecture Circuit to town to give their workers a sense of what was happening in the wider world. But whether it be the expansion of manufacturing or the growth of philanthropy, America's Industrial Revolution's greatest characteristic was the spirit of big. Big businesses, big donations, and big changes. This thought is embodied in my personal action as I take a hiatus from podcasting in favor of regular blogs that connect history and heritage to our modern society. In 1909, Daniel Burnham, a noted architect and urban planner of the era, unveiled his master plan for the city of Chicago. In the announcement, he highlighted the spirit of big that imbued the Industrial Revolution and the social changes it inspired. This spirit includes the ideas that we give ourselves too little credit, too little imagination, and that nothing is impossible. He told his supporters, Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably will themselves not be realized. Make big plans. Aim high in hope and work. Remembering that a noble, logical diagram, once recorded, will not die. But long after we are gone, it will be a living thing, asserting itself with ever-growing insistency. Remember that our sons and grandsons are going to do things that would stagger us. Let your watchword be order and your beacon beauty. Think big. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shotguns and Sugar podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or access a list of resources used to create this podcast, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.